2: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SUP China. SUP China is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course, straight from the old tap at our website, supchina.com. S U P China.com. It's a feast. Get it? Feast. SUP. Feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I am Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from Washington, D.C. I am joined from Austin, Texas by SubChina Editor-in-Chief and Agent Provocateur Jeremy Goldcorn. Say hello to everyone, will you, Jeremy? Something provocative.
0: How y'all done? Everything is everything is bigger and better in Texas, is all <laughs> I have to say.
2: That's what they say. Uh, any thoughts as you wind down your holiday and you prepare for a return to the oars?
0: Well, I've got another few days, so, uh, you know. Make the best of them. Make the best of them. <laughs> Yeah. So
2: today we're returning to the topic of North Korea with a very different angle than recent shows that we've talked about the topic on. Uh, We're delighted to have with us our old friend Evan his correspondent for The New Yorker, back with us on Seneca. Evan has just published a tremendous piece about his recent visit to Pyongyang in which he talks about the North Korean regime and its counterpart in Washington. Um, And it's really about the counterpart in Washington. It's, you know, like everything Evan writes, it's an oblique attack on the Trump administration. Or not oblique. No comment. Uh, anyway, uh, as writings on both of these topics tend to be, it's 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 both deeply funny and and quite terrifying. Um, Trump and 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 Kim Jong Un. Uh, the piece is titled uh, "The Threat of Nuclear War with North Korea," and we're going to talk to him about this cover story, his experiences in North Korea, his thoughts on the seemingly intractable problem of the North Korean nuclear program. Uh, Evan, welcome back to Sinico, man. It's been way too long.
1: Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's it's good to get the band back together.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh yeah evan, let's talk about how you got there in the first place. How does an American reporter manage to get a visa to travel to North Korea in these times? all yeah, disguise
1: <laughs> It is a bit more difficult than the usual country. I mean, usually what you do if you're a journalist is you call up the embassy and you you know go and sweet talk the flack and then lo and behold, you get a visa, and off you go. But the problem is North Korea doesn't have an embassy here uh, and what but what they do have is and I'd heard about this for years but never actually confirmed its existence, is what's known as the New York Channel, which is basically, it turns out, a couple of dudes inside the North Korean mission to the UN whose job it is, uh, is to interact with the United States. They, in effect, manage the relationship with this country that doesn't exist formally. And I cold-called them. I tried emailing and got nowhere. I'd been given some emails. So I literally cold-called uh, the mission. And, and asked to speak to uh, one of the two guys named Councillor Kwan and explained what I wanted to do, and he said uh, let's talk and so I went and saw him and we and I laid out what I wanted to do, and they said uh it may take a long time, and it did actually it took five months
2: well wow. so this is I mean at the beginning of the year you did this yeah exactly. when did you actually end up Going in August, I went or? in August. I went right, in the middle no, right. of August. I mean, did you think that your time as a reporter in China worked in your favor or worked against you? Or
1: well, it was helpful to me from an analytical perspective. No, no, no.
2: I mean in terms
1: of getting the visa. Well, in that sense, actually, I'd been advised um, quite helpfully not to mention it. I mean, my initial instinct was to sort of bring a copy of my book and to talk about how I understood some things about Asia, and I was advised. Um, By friends who really understand how the DPRK thinks that that was a really stupid thing to do, because as I now understand sort of intuitively, um, they're incredibly sensitive and uncomfortable, even with the remotest analogy to the PRC. And I don't think I got that at the outset.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's something we're going to be talking about. Although you just yeah. said you have friends that deeply understand how the DPRK thinks, but isn't that exactly what you, you, you're unable to turn up in, in your in your piece, actually?
1: Well, that's true, except that, you know, what I guess I meant was um, how that the visa I'm, department I'm, I'm very aware. I mean, to, you know, at the risk of giving away the, the, uh, the fortune and the cookie here, I kind of did come to that conclusion. You're absolutely right, Kaiser, that, like, I was... By the end of this project of interviewing, in effect, everybody who's involved in this issue in a few different countries, and and then going there, I was very aware of how much I didn't know. I was more aware of how much I didn't know than 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 really. Uh, yeah, anything and we'll, we'll I've done get to while. that. Yeah, uh, but 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 I will. But I do want to say actually, just one thing is that that's not to in any way undermine the quality of the analysis you can get and the really sharp thinking that's been done. It's just even those analysts would tell you that they know that there are these limits around what
0: they've ascertained. They know that they are unknown, unknown.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Even more so so than in China. I mean, much more so than in China, in fact.
0: Evan, um, the U.S. has been positively obsessed with the North Korean nuclear program uh, for months, or one might even say years. Uh, But if you look at headlines in South Korean newspapers— South Korea, the country that we're always being reminded, stands to lose millions of people in the event of an actual war. It's, it's a stark contrast. Why do Americans freak out about North Korea so much when South Koreans basically don't? Japan doesn't really seem to freak out so much either. Uh, yeah. Why do Americans think that deterrence can't work with North Korea when it has clearly worked for basically 64 years?
1: Yeah. I think, I mean, look, that's the heart of the matter. I, I would divide that into two questions. I think the first question is, why does South Korea not freak out? Which is sort of a, a, an interesting question. Uh, why do they not freak out compared to the United States? It, it's, it, it's you know, I spent a week in Seoul um, this summer and more or less asked everybody that question. And the answers are some form of, we are um, inured to it. Uh, and you guys overreact. And uh, we are fatalistic, and we are all Koreans, and therefore we don't think they will actually do it. Um, all of, so across you get sort of across, and then the the final the final one the final explanation is: you guys are you Americans are going through some very weird national psychodrama involving Donald Trump, and we don't quite get it, but that seems to be part of the reason why you're having this reaction to North Korea. So I actually put some, I think all of those are valid explanations to some degree. Um, The one that I actually find the the most kind of compelling on its merits is um, there's a terrific author named Han Kang, who's a Korean author who For people who are interested, is really good. Won the Man Booker International Prize a couple years ago. For she wrote *The Vegetarian*, and I I went and asked her that question, and she said, "Look, I've grown up my entire life. She's in her mid forties now, um, with the threat of this war, and and just inevitably, even my rational self has to put aside the threat of it and the risk of it because otherwise I can't function. And so, not to say that they're underplaying it, but that's just an explanation." I think the answer that the, the 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 question that you're really asking is the bigger and, and and harder one, which is why does the United States think that deterrence won't work with North Korea when it worked with the Soviet Union and and um, and, well, and has it's worked. worked
2: on the peninsula for like yeah, like Jeremy said sixty four years.
1: So the answer that the U.S. government will give you today, and this is the answer that H.R. McMaster gave me, was that um, they're not convinced that North Korea will. There's three parts. One is they're not convinced that North Korea will stay within its borders, that they think that they will actually try to achieve the national ambition that they have always identified, which is to reunify the peninsula. Number two, they're concerned about the proliferation risk. As they say, they've sold every weapon system they've ever developed, including building a nuclear reactor in Syria. That's legitimate, sure. And then the third one is, um, in some ways, the the hard one. And this is the one that I, I think I have the most objections to. This is the one where they say, we think that North Korea may not be rational in the way that the Soviet Union was, and that even though Saddam Hussein was not suicidal, dictators do things that bring about their own demise because Which they're reckless.
2: W- what I th- where I thought you were going to go with this. I mean, because that first one I object to as well. You can't say... The very thing that we're trying to deter against is this realization of the grand historical mission of reinvocation of the Agreed. peninsula, I and mean, that's yeah. what we're talking about. Uh, the second, yeah, I mean, I think that it there's there's definitely something to that. I mean, we're not deterring against proliferation. That's a problem, and it's a bit, very, very serious problem. But the third one, you're right. I mean, I think, and, and we'll get to that, you know, are the North Koreans, in fact, crazy? I mean, you have this great quote, uh, very close to the top. You said, I wanted to understand how North Koreans think about the kind of violence that their country so often threatens. Were the threats serious or mere posturing? How did they imagine a war would unfold? Before my arrival in North Korea, I spent time in Washington, Seoul, and Beijing. Many people in those places, it turned out, were asking the same things about the United States, uh, which is it's funny. I mean, are we led by a lunatic as well? I mean, that's well, The
1: that is the question that the North Koreans are asking us. It's probably a whole nother podcast, which I would be happy to do. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, look, the very specific combination of Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un is the chemical reaction. Uh, explanation for why we're here i mean why we're at this moment right um yeah i think uh, another another
0: quote from you evan in in your piece is is you write that the two men making the existential strategic decisions are not john f kennedy and nikita khrushchev but a senescent real estate mogul and reality (laughs) tv star and a young third generation dictator who has never met another head of state between them, they have less than seven years of experience in political leadership. Do you, are we really in uh, Dr. Strangelove <laughs> territory <here?
1: laughs> Yeah, Yeah, after that paragraph, go ahead and sleep well at night. Um, I mean, that was really the animating impulse behind the story was just the, the sheer empirical laying of the table. I mean, if you just lo- look at the conditions, we're dealing with, a, uh, with, with an unusual situation. However... This is where it kind of becomes interesting from my perspective. You know, the longer I live in Washington, the more admiring I become of the deep state. And I say that words with scare quotes around it. What I really mean is, you know, presidents are powerful, uh, but they are not the end of the story. Right. And, you know, um, there is an entire apparatus of professionals here who are getting up every morning and saying to themselves, all right, I need to contain Kim Jong-un, but I also need to contain Donald Trump.
2: So do you think that there is a functional deep state in, in DPRK still?
1: I don't know. I don't know if there is or not. But I am was struck by the fact that the people who I was dealing with, which I will loosely describe as the deep state only insofar as it is the professional class of Um, people involved in national security and foreign affairs. It's not, you know, in the Turkish sense, you know, the military overseeing civilian government. But I just mean it, I'm using it more in the sort of Steve Bannon, Donald Trump usage than I am in the classic use.
2: Right. I remember um, shortly after the election writing something like that on Facebook saying, you know, things are really bad when you find yourself rooting for the deep state. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I will wonder, you you flicked just now at at the fact that... uh, any mention of, of parallel between the PRC and the DPRK was going to, you know, elicit bad reactions there. But do you feel like people, well, like me, like Jeremy, or, like you, I mean, who mm-hmm. have some, if not direct experience of, of a pretty good knowledge of China prior to reform and opening or just at the dawn of reform and opening, Yeah. Uh, do you think that that knowledge helps you in some way to to get inside the the North Korean head?
1: I, I do think it. I think it does for a couple of reasons. One is that the the central idea, the Leninist impulse, which is that um, as he himself wrote, uh, you know, in order for the conductor to play the orchestra to its best, the conductor has to know. Not only what each individual section is doing, but what each individual violinist is doing and why they're doing things wrong. So a kind of, you know, the totalitarian vision, which, of course, is not executed fully in China, uh, you know, Despite best efforts, it is at best an authoritarian regime. Um, But in North Korea, it's the same fundamental impulse, which is the notion that you can organize and ordain your society in such a way. So that is really helpful because, look, it takes a lot of us years, or at least in my case, it took a while for me to really get what that was like in, in China. And I brought with me that understanding of North Korea, and that helps me. It helps me understand at least how a Leninist state sees its role in the world.
2: Right, 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 right let's let's get into this crazy theory, the madman. I mean you, you opened up your your whole piece, the the first you know, madman theory. I mean that's really uh, like you said at at the heart of, of the question mm-hmm. uh, you know, is Kim a rational actor? Can we yeah. impute to him can he be deterred i mean what what did you conclude after spending less time there talking to people who have
1: yeah I concluded that he is rational, and I'll s- explain why because you sort of have to defend that. Uh, assertion, I think. Um, I I think he has shown to a degree that we don't often appreciate enough um, uh, the ability to exercise restraint, which is not the first word we associate with Kim Jong-un, I admit. But on a couple of important occasions, he has shown that. One was when he railed against the propaganda loudspeakers that had been brought in on the border. Right. And he threatened to attack the loudspeakers, and, and he didn't actually end up shooting down the loudspeakers, which would have been an act of war, would have been a provocation of extraordinary kind. But he, he did sink a ship. Uh, he did, but he wasn't yet the man in charge. This was still 2010. Ah, right. okay. I mean, I just, and, you know, he had that for domestic, look, I am not by any means saying he's a pussycat. Right. All I'm saying is that when he has, he shows the ability to recognize what are the points of no return. And um, there's a good scholar named Van Jackson, who I mentioned in the story, who was working in the Pentagon for, uh, for five years, but has spent his life really looking at Korea's theory of victory, meaning how do they operate in confrontation. And, and he's the one who drew my attention to these demonstrations of restraint. So I think that's important uh, to keep in mind.
2: I mean, Van Jackson seems to think that he's pulling a Richard Nixon. I mean, Nixon famously was, uh, you know, in in some of the, exactly. the, the, the Oval Office tapes. Oh, he clearly wanted to project this image that he's unpredictable, that he's unstable, that he could go off any minute and, and hit the button. Is that that's, – that's what he's doing too, right?
1: Yeah. I mean what he's trying to do is he wants the world to think that he's irrational. And uh, this is Kim I'm talking about, I should specify, um, because Trump actually has also more or less sort of um, channeled some of the same instincts. But to go back to Kim for a second, I mean actually really it, it's quite – It's quite striking the degree to which Kim is enacting the classic theory of deterrence. I mean, if you go back to the origins of the theory of deterrence, Thomas Schelling, who was the great economist and theorist, later won a Nobel Prize for it. In 1966, in Arms and Influence, he wrote that what you must do in a nuclear standoff is make your adversary think that you are irrational, impetuous, and stubborn, because you need to make them think that you may just miscalculate and drag both of you down into the abyss. The problem is, is that we're now in a situation where we have two people practicing that. And that's a very, that's a very uh, uncertain There's
2: got to be some game theory analysis that says what happens when the two players are both pursuing (laughs) that same strategy. Anyway, I can't be good for the outcome. It's
1: tough. It's tough.
2: Jeremy, how is that madman theory working for you?
0: Yeah, I I don't know. I'm very confused by the United States, I have to say. (laughs) A new immigrant. (laughs) I find it much more inscrutable than China. (laughs) Evan... To to return to something we uh, raised a little earlier, you you write that our grasp of North Korea's beliefs and expectations is not much better than its grasp of ours. To go between Washington and Pyongyang at this nuclear moment is to be struck most of all by how little the two understand each other. And you say that in 18 years of reporting, you have never felt as much uncertainty at the end of a project. A feeling that nobody, not the diplomats, the strategists or the scholars who've devoted their lives to the subject, none of them are able to describe with confidence how the other side thinks. So why is North Korea so different? I mean, aside from the opacity of its government... Is it just that the DPRK is of such strategic significance because of its proximity and complicated relationships with China, South Korea, and Japan, and that pushes it to the center of US thinking on Asia, whereas countries like, say, Turkmenistan or Eritrea, Mm -hmm. whose governments are similarly opaque and hostile to American interests, are just not important enough to warrant the same scrutiny?
1: I think it's it's the combination, as you suggest, it's the combination of Uh, their very successful attempt to remain opaque, uh, even more successful than other places. I mean, Kim Jong-il elevated it to a high art. As he said, we must envelop ourselves in a fog. And if you go back to his father, to Kim Il-sung's memoir, there's also this great, parable about the importance of being inscrutable. But the, the reason, and I, I mean, let's just stipulate, I'm not making the sort of cliche about oh, being know, inscrutable. Of <laughs> so, but they are really, it's central to their national security strategy. So then on top of that, you combine it with the stakes. You know, the stakes are so high that it's the intersection of the opacity and then also the the fact that they are playing a game which by its very nature, nuclear brinkmanship, requires theater. So what that means is on both sides, and I was acutely aware of this as I'm reporting, that when I speak to American officials, they need to, they are uh, being conscious of the fact that what they're saying to me is not just information that they're giving to me, Evan, and the New Yorker. They are, in effect, communicating with the North Koreans through the through the media, and vice versa. The only reason why North Korea is letting me in there is because they have a message to send to the United States. And the 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 combination of, of trying to separate what was, in fact, theater from what was genuine intentionality and genuine sort of, you know, what they really intended to do is very, very hard. And I don't think... I, I certainly, you know, after a lot of time on this subject, I felt like... Both sides are also struggling to separate what is theater from what is genuine intentionality.
2: During the Cold War, uh, you know, of course, the Soviet Union, we had a whole industry of people, of, of basi- yeah. basically political psychoanalysts who were picking apart the thinking of Brezhnev and Khrushchev before him and, and Stalin before him. I mean, there there were people who, I mean, there were great Big tomes written yeah. specifically on this. So, what do we know about Kim, Kim Jong Un? I mean, we, so he was the third son. His first two were sort of this, his his older brother, his oldest brother of the three was disqualified for having you know gone to to Japan on a false passport to try to see Disneyland. I see yeah. why it's disqualifying. The second one was too effeminate, supposedly. Yeah, and then he 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 sort of by default makes it, and he bears this striking resemblance, as you point out. Uh, whether in wax or in in reality, to his grandfather. And then, what, he goes to to Switzerland, he's in boarding school in Switzerland, which is just weird, where he develops this, like, love for Whitney Houston, (laughs) uh, the Chicago Bulls, the whole NBA, and then uh, his other... Like some obscure films that, uh, or no. Those I mean, were basically his Yeah, two those were yeah. two things. That was, yeah. A, yeah. I mean, so the, how yeah. is, is the guy so hard to figure out?
1: Well, I, I'd say one other piece of the puzzle that I think is important to keep in mind is that Kim Jong-nam actually was out of the running before he went to Japan uh, and the Disneyland. And he was okay. beginning to lose traction with his father because he really was beginning to admire the Chinese reform model. Uh, um, he had said so to his father. He studied in Geneva when he was young. This is Kim Jong Nam and for you know I know for listeners it can be hard to keep the Kims apart but Kim Jong Nam is the oldest of the three sons. He's the guy who just died in the Kuala Lumpur airport right, right. earlier this spring. Um, not of natural causes. No, so no, Kim no. Jong Nam Uh, had gone to Geneva, had come back, and described himself later to a Japanese journalist as having tasted the life of freedom. And he really did try to persuade his father, Kim Jong-il, that if they continued down the path they were on, that they would never survive. Um, I didn't go into this much in the story just because you can't go down every road. But So that is important if you want to understand why China is also uh, something that you have to be conscious when you're when you're talking about – when you're talking to North Koreans, you can't talk about China very much because you know it's enough – it's sensitive enough that it got Kim Jong-nam out of the running.
2: Right. Wow. But that's, so to that's... go back
1: to Kim Jong-un for a second, um, why is he so hard to read? Because he has very little public record. I mean even okay. Kim Jong-nam, his oldest brother, even had that level of kind of substantive declarations about his point of view. Kim Jong-un really kind of came back from Switzerland when he was out of high school. He was 18 years old. He slips beneath the waves of the North Korean higher education system, goes to Kim Il-sung University, basically goes trains as an artillery officer for a little while, but is not a major military player, is not a major party player, and is not a major security guy, but is kind of floating around in these jobs. And then what I concluded on the basis of what I could gather from the people who I think are most knowledgeable on this in Seoul and in the U.S., is that his bearing, his attitude, was uh, the thing that gave him the edge. Um, His two brothers were flawed in the ways that you talked about as candidates, and he was the closest they had to reanimating the grandfather. Hmm. Kim Jong-il was not very popular, but Kim Il-sung is super popular, and that's who they wanted to uh, bring back into power.
2: The dear leader, wait, no, the wait, I can't he's, keep him he's straight. Great he's, leader, he's great leader, and then
1: dear leader, and then uh, and then uh, and then the respected leader is what Kim Jong Un is known
2: as. Ah, so no, he, I, I'm convinced now, Evan, that he is largely rational. That he's actually playing this game pretty deftly. That he's 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 read the books on deterrence, but has Donald Trump? Um, no, he
1: has not uh, read the books on deterrence. I I think, um, and and actually, I mean, it's almost, I know that you were being kind of figurative, but I actually asked that question of people, you know, do we have any evidence that Kim Jong-un has read the books on deterrence? And they said no. His grandfather had his advisors and aides read books on deterrence, on Thomas Shelley, actually. And uh, so there, but no, look, Trump, as we know, is kind of, um, you know, he is... um, He's not, you know. I'll I'll borrow somebody else's phrase here. I don't know who said it first, but he's not even he's not a strategic thinker. He's an adrenal thinker. He acts out of essentially, you know, biological impulse. impulse. Right. And one thing though that I think is is important to keep in mind is that I've heard, um, and I don't have this on enough with enough sort of firm sourcing to be able to put it into the New Yorker, but I think it's worth at least amplifying. The, the the theory. Um, I've heard that he has said to others uh, that he believes, and I think this has been reported actually by the New York Times and others, but that, that he believes that, that Kim Jong-un is the type of person who will eventually come to a deal, but needs to be punched in the face along the way. That he needs to feel that he has no option but to come to the table, and, and then he will come to a table, and then he will seek to make a deal. So in some ways, I actually think that that analysis is not wrong. It's not wrong. It may be right.
2: What constitutes a face-punching in this case?
1: Well, um, I think we all hope that it doesn't rise to the level of some half-baked preventive strike. Right. Does you know, the ninth round of sanctions in 11 years, does that count? Maybe. We don't know. Does an oil blockade count? Yes. But I don't think we're going to get there. Right. Um.
2: I mean, it's more than a punch in the face, though. I mean, that's 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 sort of, you know, uh, a hand on the, the the throat. I mean, it's strangulation. It's, it's pretty it's, close. it's death of the patient. So. That's
1: But that's the trajectory we're on right now is the strangulation approach. And China is not willing, as you know, to turn off the tap. Um, but we have seen significant drop-offs in oil shipments over the last three months, and right. we're likely to see more under the latest sanctions. So it's beginning to pinch. There's no question.
0: Uh, Evan, um, despite the Chinese government's long support of the DPRK, uh, Mao famously said that North Korea and China was close as lips and teeth. I'd venture to say that most Chinese people have nothing but contempt for the hermit kingdom. Uh, Kim Jong-un is derisively known as Jin San Pang, or Little Fatty the Third, on the Chinese Mm. internet. And many Chinese people view his country as a backward place that is embarrassingly an ally of China. But um, to return to something we've touched on, how do North Koreans uh, see their large neighbour? Did any North Korean officials you spoke to mention what China means to them or their views on their on the relationship with China and the role China plays in the current tensions?
1: Absolutely. I mean, this is a really interesting subject, and you know, in some ways, the most. I heard a very uh, vivid uh, description uh, from. An American who's uh, very involved with North Korean government officials told me that the term, the Korean expression that they use is that we are, uh, that China treats us as the dirt between its toes. And I remember thinking, God, it's a long way from lips and teeth. Uh, So... (laughs) Yeah, um, I mean,
2: like, actually, physiologically, it's (laughs)
1: it's hard to get farther. But then on the ground, I'll, you know, I'll tell you, interestingly enough, so I spoke to... uh, I spoke to them quite a bit about China. And at the end of my trip—and I'll tell you about that in a second, but it's kind of interesting to hear this, which is that at the end of my trip, when I was kind of wrapping up in the last day, they said, you can use everything we talked about except one thing. You cannot use what I said—this is one guy in particular—you cannot use what I said about China because it's too provocative. And— um Damn. I'll tell you though the outlines of it because I think it's it's that's valid and that's consistent with my sourcing arrangements. You know what he said was that uh, China is more or less playing us um, as a tool in its greater conflict with the United States. So their and that is totally consistent with what we might call the dirt toe theory of Chinese (laughs) Chinese DPRK relations. But like you know they really feel as if they are being. Uh, the pawns in a great power struggle, and they do not want to be. And so they are deeply, deeply suspicious of Chinese intentions.
2: It's funny how often we hear this, though. I mean, uh, we talked to Jerome Cohen, and yeah. uh, we talked about his trips to North Korea in the 1970s, I think it was. or, or, or and, and even back then, it was just—his he his, his, his hosts would get gravely insulted if he ever made any comparisons to China. Right, right Jeremy? Oh, yeah, you that?
1: very much still the case, too. I mean, they— I didn't do that because it was it was going to be counterproductive.
2: So I mean, you spent some time in China en route, um, and and perhaps afterward, um, and presumably you talked to a lot of, of, of people in China about. This. You you mentioned when I saw you last night uh, that there was a lot of, of China related material that you left out and that maybe repurposed for right. another piece. Can you offer us a preview? I mean, what are you what are you going to talk about?
1: Um, a couple of interesting things that I gathered when I was in Beijing is that um, there is a a very clear consensus emerging among what I would describe as established historians and, and regional specialists, Chinese, I mean, that their interests, that China's interests are sort of being decoupled from North Korea's interests. And I know that sounds obvious to us, but it's been a very long time coming. And for a long time, they didn't feel that way. I'll write about it soon. But Shen Zhihua, who gave a very influential speech in March, uh, he's a celebrated historian uh, of the Cold War. And he gave a speech in which he said, it's time for China to give up North Korea. We're no longer on the same page. And at the time, the fact that it wasn't censored, the fact that he didn't lose his job the way that Deng Yuen did, remember, a few right. years ago, was, was really important. And it was a sign that essentially, the, the goalposts have moved, you can now talk about.
2: No them. question that that is that's, something that's a big else. deal. Yeah, yeah, it's a huge deal. It's, it's a very, very big deal.
0: And related to that, Evan, um, you know, we've discussed the American lack of understanding of North Korea. But how about China? What did the Chinese not get or understand about their troublesome neighbor?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would add, remember, Jeremy, we talked about this with Lyle Goldstein, remember? Uh, th- there was this really remarkable review, uh, uh, interview that had been given to Channel News Asia, I think it was, by, was it the Straits Times? or No, Channel News Asia, right? Uh, by a colonel who is sort of responsible, the PLA colonel who is in charge of, of international affairs, the sort of liaison. It's a really good English speaker, and it's an interview in English. And he said, just straight up, there are no... Military to military contacts between China and the DPRK.
1: That sounds consistent with what I've heard. I mean, I, um, you know, I can tell you that the not only, of course, has Kim Jong Un never met Xi Jinping. We all know that. But in fact, the North Korean ambassador has never uh, had his credentials received in Pyongyang, uh, which is kind of that's news. Um, on top of that, I put this into the story uh, because I think this is an extraordinarily telling point, um, Randall. Phillips, who was um, CIA chief of station in Beijing and was later um, head of Asia operations, the deputy chief of Asia operations at the agency. He, uh, in 2008, when Kim Jong-un fell ill, uh, he met with a Chinese counterpart to compare analyses, as they sometimes did. And he discovered, as he told me, that the Chinese had no idea what was going on. And he realized at that point, they know a hell of a lot less than we do. So the idea that China somehow has the Pyongyang government wired is a fantasy, uh, and particularly after the demise of Sung Tech, who was their principal agent.
2: And does that mean that it's also a fantasy to believe that China can be the, the primary player in bringing North Korea to heel?
1: I think that's right. I mean, I've I've come to the conclusion that China is not the skeleton key that unlocks the North Korea problem. I I do think China is a part of it, um, partly for the obvious reasons that if we're going to try to use one tool in the toolbox, which is pressure, China is in a pretty good way. China is well positioned to deliver pressure that is not military you know principally by oil
2: you've talked about how you're hearing from an increasing number of people who are quite close to to power here to in in security or or close to the white house or to in state that negotiations are going to be necessary of course we had that that open letter that was already saying that but yeah what i'm I'm, that, that i think you know we can all agree but what about this idea that china is not the skeleton key your piece has been out for a few days now yeah uh when you talk to people here in this in this city is that something that people are ready to hear
1: I don't know if they're ready to hear it. I think that the White House has come to that conclusion by trial and error. Um, You know, Trump was so emphatic that this was, I mean, in a really sort of embarrassing way that he kind of put it all out there that China's going to solve this problem. And of course, it didn't happen. Um, Privately, I I am told by some uh, involved in the issue that that they feel as if their cooperation with China is really good right now. They actually feel like China has finally kind of is getting with the program from the American perspective, meaning that China is just going to be much tougher on North Korea. And I, that's consistent with everything we've been talking about. Right. Um, they are moving in that direction. But the idea that it was ever going to be a, simply a matter of Xi Jinping picking up the phone and saying to his friend Kim, you know, all right, you know, you've had your fun, which is how really I think a lot of people imagined it. Certainly, it's how Donald Trump imagined it a year ago. If you look at his quotes as a candidate, he said, this is, this is China's problem to solve. I mean, he really meant it. And then, as famously, of course, he met with Xi Jinping in Mar-a-Lago and came out of it and said, it turns out that it's not as simple as people think. So um, that's what I mean when I say that China is not the key to solving this. I- I'm not yet convinced. I don't really know what to believe. There's been some... Kind of self glamorizing theories that have been floated from Rex Tillerson's office that he's playing a kind of, you know, four dimensional chess here and that he's dealing back channel <laughs> with the Chinese. But uh, I'll believe it when I see it.
0: Evan, can we go back in history a little bit? Why has the U.S. never signed a, a, a peace treaty with North Korea? You know, there's been an armistice in place since 1953. And I think in 2010, uh, the Obama administration basically said that it wasn't possible to sign a peace treaty unless North Korea denuclearizes. But I mean, the, the lack of a peace treaty predates North Korea's um, nuclear program by a long time. What has been the obstacle to resolving this uh, in the past?
1: Well, part of it has to do with what the role of the United States would be in South Korea, after all this. I mean, as part of a peace treaty, there would inevitably be the idea that the United States would begin to reduce its role on the peninsula and that we would eventually, we wouldn't need the kind of troop commitments that we have there now. Um, and I think there's been a lot of resistance on the American side uh, to begin to go down that road. And I, I also think that, you know, it's now been. It's been a generation, really, since the nuclear issue began, practically. You know, 94 was the agreed framework. So it's a long time uh, that we've been trying to solve this issue. So the fact that the peace treaty was never signed in 53 is a whole different issue. But the the fact that they couldn't figure out a way to do it over the last 25 years is rooted in effect in the problems around the weapons programs.
2: One last question for you before we move to the recommendations. So how do you feel about allowing American travel to North Korea? I mean, journalists accepted, I mean, like yourself, of course, does anyone really travel there with sound, reasonable, and morally valid intent? I mean, I, I can imagine... Going there for the same reason 10-year-old boys dare each other to spend the night in the creepy, repeatedly haunted house in the woods <laughs> uh, or out of maybe an exaggerated appreciation for kitsch or or just, you know, the schadenfreude thing, you know, masquerading as hipster curiosity or maybe in service to Jesus. Hmm. <laughs> but, but why the hell else go there? Uh, I mean, none of those reasons to me sound, you know what I say, sound reasonable, mor- morally valid.
1: I mean, I it, you know, it would be pretty hypocritical for me right now to tell people not to go to North Korea, considering that I just went. But, um, <laughs> but uh, I do think that you can draw some lines around th- your reasons for going. I think that if you're going for, for legitimate journalism, if you're going for legitimate humanitarian purposes, if you're going for essentially things that are trying to either... Um, help the United States or help the North Koreans to to really sort of move this thing in a in a, in a useful direction. That's a legitimate reason for travel. Where does
2: Rodman fit into this?
1: <laughs> I mean, that's. I think Rodman is. Um, I you know Rodman. I I actually have have spent a lot of time working on that element of this, trying to understand him. I've spoken to a lot of people around him.
2: There may be a Nobel Peace Prize in the (laughs) future.
1: I think that's a long way off. He actually is coming at this, you know, at the risk of defending Dennis Rodman, I think he's coming at this from a position of um, guileless positivity in the sense that he really thinks it's a little bit like ping pong in China. I mean, it's, you know, and, and it's not that's what he thinks it is.
2: Well, I mean, why isn't it? Because in 1972, 1971, 1972, China was a a a wickedly autocratic state with a a a pretty bad man, at least 70% bad. I'm going to invert the, 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 the uh and who, you know, it, it it was a nuclear armed state, it was a exporting revolution still. Uh, The reason
1: why it's different is that I think Rodman's error was he sang happy birthday to Kim Jong-un at an exhibition basketball game. He went and spent several days with Kim Jong-un on a sort of extended kind of, you know, buddy romance weekend at their, I mean, it was actually like a week-long trip at his seaside resort. When you had people doing sports diplomacy, ping pong diplomacy, that was about bringing people to people uh, opportunities together and not acclaiming the virtue of the opposing powers leader. I, I just think, you know, it matters not just that you're doing it, it matters how you're doing
2: it. So Nobel, no, no Nobel Prize <laughs> Maybe for, not,
1: for, not for yet. But I, I do think, um, to go back to the, you know, the question of whether people should go as tourists, I, I don't think this is the moment to be, I mean, obviously now the U.S. government has, has made that impossible, but I, that was the right move. I don't think it's, it's the moment for us to be doing that kind of travel.
2: Evan, I want to be mindful of your time, uh, and so I want to thank you. Uh, Jeremy, do we have recommendations today? Or
0: uh, I, I you have one, one? If, you, if you'd if you like to. Yeah, let's uh, let
2: you and Evan give them, because I'm drawing a blank right now. So uh, why don't we very quickly move to recommendations and uh, first remind our listeners that The Cynic Podcast is powered by SubChina. Uh, you can follow SubChina on Facebook at facebook.com slash News or on Twitter at, at SubChina News. And uh Jeremy, you go ahead and start. What do you have recommendations okay, so Maybe I'll, I'll think of something. Th-
0: this country is really starting to do my head in and I have started actually watching more TV than I used to be. Uh than I used to. And I'd like to recommend and it's a British, affecting your language. But, but it's a British TV series I'm gonna recommend. Uh, Jeeves and Wooster. Uh it's a comedy based on the PG uh, Wodehouse Jeeves stories about oh, right. this gorm- gormless aristocrat and his very bright butler, who in this series is played by Stephen Fry. And it's really a wonderful uh, escapist pleasure when you don't feel like thinking about Donald Trump and North Korea. Um, I'm going to give a
1: North Korea recommendation. Seems appropriate. Uh, Blaine Harden, who is a great author and journalist, um who uh, wrote a book that got a lot of attention and then got the wrong kind of attention, which was called Escape from Camp 14, which was a a story of a defector, and turned out the defector had had, uh, misstated parts of his story. But the reason why I want to recommend Blaine Harden's work is that he's written other books on North Korea in addition and has remained committed to the subject and is immensely careful and smart. And I just think that people should be reading his stuff, particularly a book called Great Leader Uh, and the fighter pilot, because one of the reasons why it's important is that it explains how the North Koreans think about the Korean War. And that's huge. You can't understand the way that they operate towards us and the way they think about our sort of hostility and the possibility of war with the United States unless you really understand the depth of devastation from the war. Wow. So Blaine Harden gets my vote 100%. Yeah,
2: I've I've never really never, never encountered his work. I'll have to check it out. Great. That's a great recommendation. I'm going to, uh, so I'm, I live in this lovely university town, Chapel Hill, and the public library there every once in a while has these. Book sales, and they're you know a buck for oh, soft cover and a buck, two bucks for hardcover books, and it's amazing because when you're in a university town, the used books that go on sale are great. And so I, I I bought a bunch of really terrific books and spent like twenty bucks, you know, for like a couple of big boxes of books. And so uh, one that I picked up that I had lost, I'd lent to somebody ages ago, and I was flipping through the other day, just looking for a reference to something. And I just remembered how great it is. It it was uh, um, it's James Sheridan. China in disintegration, which basically is is just a narrative history of the entire period between the Republican Revolution and through the warlord period and, and the May Fourth Movement. So it looks at uh, the Republican Revolution, the May Fourth, and the, the revolutions that followed, the second and third revolutions, the uh, the the collapse into warlordism, and then the New Culture and, and May Fourth periods, which are just to me, you know, it's like understanding. Uh, Taisho democracy or the Weimar Republic or you know it's it's just one of these it's it's one of the keys to understanding China so uh, great book I, I I'd forgotten how much I liked it back in the day so hey Evan thanks so much hey my uh, pleasure yeah no it was great thanks, to, guys like you said, I appreciate you having again. me in um, and and we're gonna you know prevail on you for other things in in the near future uh, Jeremy good to talk to you man
0: yeah well, as always thank you Evan it was great speaking to you again.
1: My pleasure. It's nice to do it on, uh, on U.S. soil, to have the three of us all here. The
0: land of the <laughs> not free. Not yeah. last time. Yeah. <laughs> For now. For now. <laughs> and with those ominous
2: words. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn cackling there in the background. Drop us an email at Seneca at subchina.com. Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash subchina news. Still cackling. And follow us on Twitter at subchina news. Thanks for listening. Thanks for cackling.
0: (laughs) I can't stop laughing. And we'll see you next week. (laughs) Take care. Yeah. The end of the world news. (laughs) 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 Bye-bye. Exactly. That was the final podcast. (laughs)